Today we're going to look at Psalm 91, and as we think about Psalm 91, I've got this question for you. Do you have the proper insurance policy? Do you have the proper insurance policy? Insurance policies are helpful things, but if you've ever had to deal with insurance policies and you have to make a claim on something, it's frustrating if you've never read all that fine print and you think, you think you're covered on something and you find you're not. <laughs> you think you're safe, if you will. You think you're protected. And then something happens and then, oh, well, actually, did you read this little fine print here? Uh, sorry, we can't give you any money. That happens to people. They think they're protected and they're actually not protected. Well, there's an interesting story about a bridge in this picture here. This is a very famous bridge. Some of you may have seen this. A very famous bridge, and I might ask you, well, do you know which one it is? Anybody know what it is? This is the Golden Gate Bridge. It's located at the entrance of the San Francisco Bay. It's one of the largest, most spectacular suspension bridges in the world. It spans nearly 9,000 feet or 2,900 meters through midair. When the world-famous bridge was being constructed, I read there were several of the men who were working on the bridge ended up dying. They lost their lives because they fell from the very high positions of working on the bridge, uh, at least 200 feet above the water. When they hit the water, they died. Consequently, the work was constantly behind schedule because uh, after people started dying, they were afraid. Uh, and, and, you know, when you're, when you're holding on to stuff, you know, you're, you're very slow and reluctant to get your work done. You don't want to use both of your hands. And that's what happened. And, and so work was always behind schedule until somebody came up with this br brilliant idea a good idea of building a safety net uh, directly under where the men were working on the bridge. And then with that security in place, any of the, the men who are working on the bridge, if they did fall, wouldn't tumble to their, to their death. They would be caught by the net. And so a giant safety net was, was built. It was very sturdy, stout. It was strung under the construction work. So that for the first time in history of any major construction, they, they used this sort of a net. By the way, the cost for the net was $100,000 during its day, which is a staggering amount when you consider this is post-Depression years. But the effect was immediate and noticeable. The work suddenly proceeded at a much faster rate because the men knew that if they did slip off the bridge, they would be caught by the net and their lives would be spared. Well, I use that as an illustration because it was the same effect that God's sovereignty had upon the psalmist of Psalm 91. In this case, God himself was his security net or his insurance policy, if you will, his security, his protection. And he, he says that God would be his refuge and fortress. And under this security, the psalmist 
could then move forward in his life with great confidence and efficiency. This psalm, by the way, vividly describes God's sovereign protection of his people from various threats, many dangers, alarming terrors. And so, in reading these verses, Christians and believers should be encouraged to trust God, knowing that nothing can harm a child of God, unless God himself permits that to happen, just as he did with Job. You know, Satan was on that leash. So so Satan could come and and do certain things around Job, and even was able to to touch his body, but he was on the leash. He couldn't kill Job. Well, this is a psalm that is very helpful. A psalm to be read when you and I face times of great danger, when we are being confronted by the powers of evil, when Satan and his demons are attacking us, and this world is attacking us. This is a a psalm that could be very comforting. So here's our theme as we think of Psalm 91 today. I'll put it on the screen here for you. That Well, maybe I didn't put it on the screen. Sorry. Anyway, here's the theme that God is a secure defense for those who take refuge in Him. That's the theme from Psalm 91. God is a secure defense. By the way, notice the little qualifying remark. It is only for those who take refuge in Him. So with that theme in mind, that's, that's, that's come to these truths that Psalm 91 teaches us. And in the very first two verses, we learn this truth, that God is our secure defense. So he's kind of setting the tone of the whole psalm here. Look at this. Psalm 91, look at verse 1. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord... My refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. So you see in those first two verses where the theme comes from. God is a secure defense for those who take refuge in Him. So we see this beautiful picture of God just in a couple verses. Let me ask you this, my friends. Do you have a faith in a powerful, big, awesome God? Do you? See, everybody has faith in something. We're all trusting in something. The question is, is it the right object of faith? Well, my friends, Psalm 91 is is pushing us and helping us to look at a powerful God. He is a secure defense. And so, because God is a secure defense, this truth calls us to do two things in these two verses. Two things. Number one, look at verse one, because verse one is saying to live in God's presence. See, it's not enough to just believe in God's presence, that there is a God, but you and I must live in God's presence. Now, how do we do that? Well, verse 1 says, dwell in the Most High's shelter. Dwell in His shelter. So in the face of mounting dangers here, the psalmist declared his personal trust in God. And he did so, by the way, with a sharp focus on God's character. He uses three names of God here. Three names of God. Now, I'm going to tell you what they are in Hebrew. You can see what they are in English. Now, the word most high in Hebrew is El Elyon. That 
El Elyon emphasizes God's strength, God's sovereignty. God has all sorts of names and titles, many, many of them. This is a beautiful one. The idea is that God reigns totally supreme over all of his creation. And because of that, we can trust him. Therefore, a believer who is dwelling in the shelter of the Most High can expect to find God as a sure protection. It's sure. You can be confident. He dwells close to God under the shelter of divine care. Number two, notice it also says we can live in God's presence because it says here to abide in the almighty shadow. Abide in the almighty shadow. Now, in the Middle East, it gets very, very hot. And the sun just bakes your skin. But yet again, the psalmist is declaring his trust in God. He's using a second name for God here. The word almighty, you've probably heard this Hebrew word, El Shaddai. It pictures God as one who is active. He's not passive, but active. He is also the self-existent one. That's what El Shaddai means, the active self-existent one. He's the all-powerful, invincible God. And that is a beautiful picture. And that's why we sometimes people, Christians, sing songs about El Shaddai. He is the active, self-existent one. And so here we have the psalmist who is at rest. Why? Why? Because he, he's looking to the El Shaddai. He's abiding in his shadow. He's finding protection from the vicious sun. He's calm. He's at peace. He's resting. He's abiding in the shadow of El Shaddai. And so that depicts God's guardianship in every believer's life. You can abide in his shadow. The second truth we we see in verse 2 is we're to trust in Yahweh's protection. Trust in Yahweh's protection. Now I say Yahweh because when you look at verse 2, our English Bibles often translate the Hebrew Yahweh, God's beautiful name Yahweh, into Lord. All capital letters, L-O-R-D. You see that in the English, verse 2. That is God's name, Yahweh. It's Hebrew, Yahweh. So we are to trust in Yahweh's protection. Why? Well, three things that are mentioned in verse uh, 2. That God is my refuge, God is my fortress, and God is my God. All three of those things are reasons to trust in Yahweh's protection. And you'll see them all there in verse 2. Now here is a man who has unwavering resolve. How is that possible? Because he's trusting in Yahweh's protection. It's a good example of dynamic faith. You say, well, what is faith? What is faith, anyway? Well, faith is a reliance upon God's invincible might to be his refuge and fortress. Kind of a definition coming from the text here. Let me repeat that. Faith is a reliance upon God's invincible might to be his refuge and fortress. By the way, a refuge is not the same as a fortress. A refuge is a place to flee for protection. 
Now, they could end up being the same thing, but they don't, they're not the same word. A fortress, you need to think of something as like a castle, a stronghold. And so on top of that, the psalmist here has enough faith in God to use the word my. Do you see that little word my in your text? My just means there's a relationship. God is my God. He's not just a God or somebody else's God, but I have a relationship with this almighty, powerful God. He's my God. And that's why he says my God there in verse 2, showing the intimacy in a relationship. The second truth the text teaches us in verses 3 through 13 is that God is our protection. God is our protection. Look at verse 3. Verse 3, for he, that's God, will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a buckler. You will not fear the terror of the night nor the arrows that flies by day nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High who is my refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague come near your tent. For He will command His angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On your hands they will bear you up. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. That ends that little paragraph there. So we see God as our protection. Do you recognize, though, that you need protection? Some people are very independent in, in their, their life and the way they think. They, they feel like they don't need God. And some people, particularly in New Zealand, would say, well, I live in New Zealand. Uh, you know, what do I need protection from? It's not like I live in Australia where all the plants and the animals seem like they can harm you in some way. Or, you know, I'm not living in some place where, uh, you know, the... The, the national religion and the politics of the country is, is Muslim or Islam. You know, I'm, I'm not under attack from those kind of people. So, yeah, I'm safe. Well, you need to understand that a, a Christian has many enemies. Christian path through this world is beset with difficulties. And let me give you four great enemies. If you're a Christian, you have these four enemies. Number one, you have the people of this world. They are not your friends. They are your enemies. Number two, the false teachers. You'll find them on the airwaves. You'll find them in the Christian bookstores. You'll find them in the pulpits. Number three, you have the devil or Satan, whatever you want to call him. But your worst enemy is your own flesh, your indwelling sin, the old self that resides within every Christian. You still have that, even though if you're a Christian, you still have that flesh. And so you, you might say, well, okay, 
Hopefully, hopefully you're convinced at this point. So then you might wonder, well, what are the benefits of this insurance policy? You know, a lot of people don't want to sign up and spend money on their insurance policies until they know the benefits, right? Uh, why, why else do you go and spend heaps of money on insurance if you don't think you're going to get any benefits from it? We don't do that. That's foolishness. Well, this insurance policy has great benefits. So let's talk about it. We see that God is our protection, but in, in what ways? All right, number one, we see here in verse 3 that God will deliver you. God is promising to deliver you. And you say, well, what is he, what is he going to be my protection from? from? From what? Well, verse 3 says, from the fowler's snare. From the fowler's snare. And you say, what? <laughs> we don't... A lot of times we don't know what some of this stuff is. So what is a fowler? Anybody wondering what a fowler is? Well, I'll give you a clue. Do you see the word fowl in the word fowler? That just means it's uh, somebody who traps birds. <laughs> so fowl being birds, right? Somebody who traps and snares birds is a fowler. And God's using that as a metaphor here, representing any plots against a Christian that's intended to endanger his life. God's saying, I'm going to protect you against these kind of people, <laughs> these kind of situations. So this image pictures danger as a hunter is stalking his prey. God's saying, I'm going to deliver you from the snare. I'm going to deliver you from this trap. But he also goes on to say in verse 3, I'm going to deliver you from the deadly pestilence. I'm going to deliver you from, you know, I don't know, whatever it is, you know, Ebola or, uh, you know, HIV or whatever it might, you, whatever pestilence comes to your mind. God's saying, I can protect you from that as well. By the way, pestilence is just another metaphor for, you know, various forms of harm. A harm that's a life-taking life, you know, something that's going to be a plague to you. And so I hope you're getting the picture here, something that's a very serious danger. God's saying, I'm going to protect you from that. Number two, how else is God our protection? Well, in verse 4, we see here that God will cover you. He's going to cover you. Like, notice the imagery here, like an eagle protecting its young. God's going to Cover Christians, believers, with feathers and wings. By the way, don't get the wrong picture here. I hope you understand God doesn't literally have feathers and wings. right? You do understand that, right? John 4 says that God is spirit. All right? His very essence, character, nature, if you will, is, is he's spirit. He doesn't have feathers and wings. He doesn't have hands, arms, so forth. But, but what's the point? God's using this human language, figurative language. It's a metaphor. He's helping us understand what he does. How does he act on our behalf? Well, if you're not getting the picture here, let me tell you a story I heard one time. I once heard a story about a farmer who owns some chickens. Because God's describing himself like, like a, a mother chicken here. Well, anyway, th this chicken farmer had a fire 
and he thought he had lost everything in his, in, in his farm, including the buildings and all his livestock. But after the fire was extinguished, he found several little chicks that somehow managed to live. They, they somehow managed to find safety. And it was interesting, he found, they found safety under their mother's wings. So these little baby chickens, the chicks, went under the mother's wings and she was able to protect them from the fire. She gave up her life. She died in the fire. But the little chicks survived the fire because they were under the hen's wings. And this is what God does for us. God protects us. Puts us under His wings, metaphorically. Number three, how does God protect us? Well, verse 4 teaches that God will guard you. He's going to guard you. And again, there's this imagery. How does He do this? Well, He's using things that they would have been familiar with. We we aren't so familiar with these, so I might need to explain a few of these. But notice verse 4. God's going to guard you like a shield. He's going to guard you like a shield. At the end of verse 4, it says His faithfulness is a shield. Now, a shield, think of something large. Think of like a Roman soldier shield. You ever seen Roman soldiers on, on some movie or in a picture? They had big, huge shields. Big enough for these guys, you know, particularly in the front row, these guys, these shields are about as tall as they were. They could make an entire wall with these shields. They weren't very mobile, but they were good protection. God's saying, I'm going to be like that shield is supposed to be to a Roman soldier. But he also says there in verse 4, I'm also a buckler. You say, what's a buckler? (laughs) Well, uh, the... International Standard Standard Bible Encyclopedia says this. It says, quote, The buckler was a small rounded shield, usually worn on the arm, comprising part of the defensive armor of the warrior. So maybe you would have seen this with gladiators. Some some of the gladiators would use a buckler, and they would have a, maybe it would be on their left arm, this little shield that would help protect them, but in the other hand they would have their sword and they would fight with the little shield, the buckler, and and a sword. So the buckler would give protection, some protection. It was small. It was very mobile. It didn't weigh much. They could move quickly. And so the psalmist is using, again, another metaphor here, representing God's faithfulness and guarding him from harm. Number four, verses five and six teach us that God will not frighten you. God will not frighten you. And there's four things that are mentioned here in verses 5 and 6. That God's not going to frighten you with the terror of the night. He's not going to frighten you with the terror of the night. And and by the way, this is when you are the most vulnerable to an enemy's surprise attack. You remember this, for example, I'll use a biblical story. You remember the story of Gideon? How did uh, God... Use, use Gideon and the, the 300 men against the Midianites. You don't, you don't take 300 men against a, a huge, vast army during the middle of the daytime when they can see you coming. No, they, God told them to go at nighttime. And, and the surprise attack worked. Because we, armies don't like to be surprised. They want to know what's going on. That's when they're most vulnerable. Vulnerable. 
It's God saying, I'm not going to frighten you with the terror of the night. And he goes on, I'm not going to frighten you with the arrow by day. That would be an extremely frightening thing if you were living during this time and you were in a battle to see lots of arrows flying your way. Especially if you didn't have a huge shield to hide behind. Imagine all these arrows come flying up in the air and you're, you're in the direct path of them. It would be frightening. God says, I'm not going to frighten you with the pestilence in darkness. Verse 6 says, I'm not going to frighten you with the destruction at noon. By the way, the reason he's not going to fear is because God is the sure protection. That's the point of all this. He's, he's giving various things of why we don't need to be frightened. And then fifth, God will sustain you. God will sustain you. Verse 7 teaches us you're, you're going to escape disaster. You will escape disaster. Verse 8, you will only observe disaster. Much nicer to be an observer instead of experiencing it. And so because of God's intervention, disaster will not come near you. Now you might ask, well, how is that possible? Well, because God's greater than any human being. God's greater than even a group of human beings, an army or some religious group or political group or whatever it might be. And then we see in verses 9 and 10 that you will escape the harm. And so we have the psalmist, he's growing in his confidence in God. He's repeating his opening declaration of faith to make the Lord his dwelling and the Lord is his refuge. And this is what we might call total reliance on God. This is what it looks like. Now, some people look at this passage, these verses, sometimes they get ripped out of their context, sometimes they're misapplied, and some people might say, well, hey, wait a minute, bad things do happen to good people. By the way, there's no such thing as as good people, technically, theologically speaking, but let's just use that phrase that some people use. Uh, it, It is true, isn't it, that... Bad things do happen to good people. So how does that marry up with what we see here in Psalm 91? What's going on? Well, let's use some other verses that might help us to understand this passage. For example, Romans 8.35 says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? It's a rhetorical question. What's what's the answer? Well, nothing. Nothing can separate you from Christ's love for you. And so this verse seems to be saying something different from the promise we have in Psalm 91. By the way, Romans 8 is implying that harm will befall us. That's the implication. It doesn't say no harm will befall you. But as you go through it, Christ is there. His love is still there with you. And then look at Romans 8, verse 37. It helps kind of explain what's going on. It helps to answer this question. Romans 8, 37 says, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. And notice the little word in. In. A very important word. And here's the point, my friends. 
we're not saved from harm. We're saved in them. And so when you're tempted to have a bad attitude, I like what Spurgeon said. Here's Spurgeon's words. I'm quoting from him. It is impossible that any ill should happen to the man who is beloved of the Lord. Ill to him is no ill, but only good in a mysterious form. Losses enrich him, sickness is his medicine, reproach is his honor, and death is his gain. End quote. Your perspective makes all the difference, doesn't it? Makes huge difference. Well, as we move on to verses 11 and 12 here, we see that God will protect you. He will protect you. And notice verse 11 says, His angels will guard you. That's interesting because notice the word angels in your text. Verse 11 is plural. Plural angels will singular. The word is singular. Guard you. Plural angels. In other words, more than one angel will guard you. God's promising this for you. And verse 12 says his angels will bear you up. Now what's the point here? God will protect you. So can we expect angels to minister to us today? Or is this something that was only for the psalmist way back whenever this was? Well, in part, the sovereign guardianship will be carried out by God's angels, whom the Lord is commanding and commissioning to guard you. By the way, hope you believe in guardian angels. I do. This isn't the only text that we could use to prove the point that there are angels that we don't usually see, but are, but are there ministering on God's behalf. It's also interesting that Satan quoted these verses here to, uh, he actually quotes them to Jesus Christ when he tempted him in the wilderness in Matthew chapter 4. But if you look at the text properly, he actually omits the very last phrase. He omits, in all your ways. <laughs> hmm, very interesting. So we need to beware, my friends. Satan is very crafty. Satan knows Scripture. Satan can quote Scripture. He cites Scripture, but he does it for his own purposes. He'll twist Scripture. He'll rip stuff out of its context. He, he omits stuff. And that's exactly what he's doing here uh, to, to Jesus in Matthew chapter 4. By the way, Matthew 4 verse 6 says this. Satan said to Jesus, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written. And then he quotes from this passage. He says, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. By the way, how did Jesus respond to Satan? Well, he, he quotes Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16. And in Matthew 4, 7 says, Jesus said to him, again, it is written. So here's Jesus' response. He says, you shall, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So what's the point? Well, you need to understand something. This divine protection extends only to the place of trusting and obeying God. 
So usually protections will not be granted to those who are testing God. You know, for example, if you go and you do something absolutely stupid, like what Satan was trying to do to Jesus, well, why don't you just jump off? Go jump off a cliff. Go jump off the top of a tall building. Usually, God's not obligated to protect you from your stupidity. Okay? But there are some Christians who like to say, well, this is, this is a blanket statement. It covers everything, 100%. That is not true. Not true. So usually protection is only granted to those, to, to those who are trusting in God, living in His protection, and not testing God. So don't test God with your life. Don't put Him to the test. By the way, what is the error in Satan's reasoning? In Matthew chapter 4, there is an error in his reasoning. And here's what one commentator said that, that's showing his error. So I'm quoting from a commentary here. Satan is manipulating Psalm 91 to make it apply where it does not apply. The insurance policy is invalid in cases of willful misuse. The promise does not give Jesus or the psalmist's contemporaries, or us, carte blanche, which means free reign, to embark on any project that he or they or we may dream up, believing that it will be automatically covered by the policy. Rather, it is for those who love, acknowledge, and call upon God, according to verses 14 and 15, and who in that spirit of devotion and submission want only to go his way and not their own. Those are the terms to which the insured party has to agree. To ignore them and then to expect his protection is, as Jesus said, a foolish and wicked attempt to put God to the test. End quote. I hope that helps. I find that explanation helpful. It's just like your insurance policies. Right? If you have an insurance policy, for example, on your home... And, and you go and you do stupid stuff like building fires in the middle of your lounge and burn your house down because you think, well, I can handle this, the insurance company is going to say you were a fool. Insurance policies don't cover foolishness and stupidity. <laughs> There's little fine print for that sort of stuff. Right? You won't get your money if you burn your house down. So let me ask you this. Do you believe in guardian angels? I hope you do. By the way, Satan is an angel. And Satan believes in angels. <laughs> in fact, here's uh, what the book of Hebrews says, verse 14. Chapter 1, verse 14 says this. Are they, referring to the angels, not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? What's the answer to the question? The answer is yes. They are ministering spirits sent out to serve. Anyway, I don't want to get into that big, long discussion, but I hope you can see from Scripture that there are angels. Usually we don't see them, but Hebrews does go on to say sometimes we do entertain them unaware. Sometimes we come in contact with angels and we don't even know it. They're there. Most of the time we don't see them, though. But they're doing God's work. Number seven, 
we learn in verse 13 that God will strengthen you. God will strengthen you in, in, in various ways. Notice verse 13 says you'll be able to tread upon the lion, tread upon a, a cobra, trample the great lion, and trample the serpent. Different ways of saying the same thing. God's going to give you strength. By the way, it doesn't literally mean that you can go and do su- stupid, foolish things like play with poisonous snakes. This isn't God saying, I'm going to protect you from your stupidity. God could strengthen you to do that if he wished. Now here's the point. These threatening beasts are picturing enemies. God's saying, I'm going to protect you from your enemies. That's the point. Well, let's move on. Much could be said about these, but uh, let's move on to verses 14 and 16, and we learn a third great truth here, that God is our pledge. He's our pledge. Look at verse 14. Verse 14. Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. Now, here's what I want you to notice in those three verses. Okay? Listen closely. Number one, there's a sudden shift in the speaker going from the psalmist to God himself. Okay? So if you didn't catch the little shift in who's speaking, it might be a little confusing to you. Do you see that? That God is the one speaking in those three verses. God's the one doing this work. He's the one pledging himself to his people. Uh, Second of all, there's eight times here that God says, I will. Now, in your English Bible, you're you're not going to pick up on all eight. All right? But uh, you're going to see this repeated phrase several times. God saying, I will, I will. I'm going to do this, I promise. I will, I will, I will. And so when you see something repeated that many times in a very short section, you really need to sit up and take notice. It's important. God's emphasizing, I'm pledging myself to you, is what he's saying. He has a point he's trying to make. And you say, well, what is God pledging? Look at verse 14. God's pledging that he will deliver you. He's pledging, I'm going to protect you. So keep that in mind. God's speaking in verse 14 when he says, because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. So God can set us on high here, which means he can put us above and beyond the reach of trouble. Maybe like a a young mother might do who has young children, (laughs) who might be trying to child-proof her house. You ever seen parents do that? Because little children like to touch stuff and play with things that they they can break. They can hurt themselves or other people. They might they might grab the cord on on a glass lamp and pull it on top of themselves or something like that. Well, God's saying, no, I'm gonna I'm gonna put this stuff out of your reach for your own protection. I'm pledging myself to you. 
God's also saying in verse 15 that he will answer you. God promised to answer our cries when we, when we pray, when we pray for help. Which might not mean instant deliverance. Just because we pray to God doesn't mean he, he's going to instantly deliver us from our troubles. But a period in which he's going to sh- will share our trouble with us until time for deliverance comes. Verse 15 has so much packed in there. We, we see also that God will be with you. God will rescue you. God will honor you. God will satisfy you. And notice God saying, I will do this. I'm pledging myself to you. Over and over again, he's saying this idea, I'm pledging myself to you. I'm going to satisfy you with fullness of life. How does God do that, by the way? God adds years to your life and life to your years. It doesn't mean necessarily a long life, but God's saying what, what years I do give to you will be blessed. And so the believer is going to live a long, full life within the boundaries that God has set. God wants to give us a fulfilled life, which means a full life in Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. That's the idea in John 10, verse 10, when Jesus says this. Look at this. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. But Jesus says this. Look at this. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. And we also learn in verse 16 that God will show you. What does He want to show? The answer is, according to verse 16, He wants to show His salvation. He wants to show His salvation because verse 16 says, With long life I will satisfy Him and show Him my salvation. That's what God wants to show. That's one of the main ways God declares His glory to you and the nations. But let's ask another question here from this text. Why is God pledging? We see that God is pledging, but why? Well, the text gives us several clues. Number one, verse 14, because we love God. Did you notice that in verse 14? The first part of verse 14, because He holds fast to me in love. God says then, I will deliver Him. So there's a qualification there because we love god god's pledging himself to us by the way do you enjoy a loving relationship with god well how can we love god how can we love god well we must deliberately choose him above everything else if we choose something other than god then that's idolatry we have to cleave to him we have to obey Him. Those are the ways God says we love Him. Notice number two. Why is God pledging Himself? Because we acknowledge God. So let me ask you this. Do you acknowledge God's name? By that I mean, do you acknowledge His attributes? Do you recognize God's titles? God's person? Do you know anything about God's titles, attributes, and person? Those are the sort of things God wants you to understand. He's revealed Himself in those ways, so it's incumbent upon you to study 
who he is. And so even when you don't understand what's happening, you can still believe in who God is. Number three, why is God pledging? Verse 15 says, because we call upon God. Because we call upon God. So look at verse 15. It says, when he calls to me. This is, this is talking about the believer. When a Christian calls to God, God says, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. So, let me ask you this question. Do you enjoy a living relationship with God? Do you regularly call upon him? Could you do that at any moment, seven days a week, 24 hours a day? Calling on God in prayer is just an outward expression of an inward feeling of trust in God. Prayers, bringing specific situations to God, expecting Him to fulfill His promises, like John 14, verse 12 says this. This is Jesus speaking. Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in Me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will He do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in My name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. That's the idea here. We're calling upon God because we have this living relationship with Him. It's just an outward expression of an inward trust in Him. People who know their fathers well are able to do this on a physical, earthly relationship and it carries over into the spiritual relationship as well so let me ask you this as we kind of wrap this up have you picked up on the theme here the overarching theme going through psalm 91 that god is a sure defense for those who take refuge in him so let me ask you this have you done that not enough to just to be able to say this theme or to to quote these verses But have you personally done this? Have you made God your sure defense by taking refuge in Him? Have you put your trust in God? And if you're a non-Christian, an unbeliever today, you need to understand something. Jesus Christ is the only one whom you can trust in to save you from yourself, from your sin, from eternal death. There is nobody else, no other way. And so for you, my Christian friend, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, trust is something you have to continually do. You have to continually learn this. It's not just a one-time action where you, you get it settled for the rest of your life. You've got to continually learn this. So every morning, you're going to be confronted again and again. You're going to be challenged. Where does your trust lie? You get those feet out of your bed and you put them on the floor. One of the first things that needs to come into your mind is, I'm trusting in God for whatever comes my way today. I'm trusting in Him. Will you trust Him or are you going to trust something else or somebody else? The Scriptures confront us with a God who is worthy of our trust. God's bigger than the adversity that you and I face. He remains in full control at all times. And He is faithful. 
Here's the problem, though. Proverbs 3, verse 5 confronts us with this issue. Look at this. Proverbs 3, verse 5 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. But what's the natural tendency of our flesh? To lean on our own understanding. We, we want a crutch, if you will. The crutch being our own ways, our own ways of thinking, our own strength. We're like, oh, yeah, I believe God. Yeah, you know, that's cool, but, you know, I need, I need kind of a backup plan here. Plan B or option B here. Something else, just in case God's not enough. Well, my friends, God is enough. Proverbs is saying, no, trust in the Lord, not with just part of your heart, but notice it's all your heart. Well, this psalm is pointing us to to do that, is it not? Make God your sure defense. He is your sure defense for, for all those who trust in Him. So it's pointing us to Him, to God, as the source of true security. And so the person who's trusting completely in God and not in ourselves, not in this world or anything else, guess what's going to happen to you? You're going to experience God's divine protection in your life. You will. It's something that you can be assured of with 100% confidence that God is your sure defense. May God give us the grace to believe it and then act upon it. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us Psalm 91. We're thankful for, we just get yet again a a neat little picture of who you are, what you've done, what you've promised and pledged yourself to do for your people. It's beautiful. It is glorious to behold. And may we believe it. So we ask you would open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your word. We, We know you're faithful. We know you're big, you're powerful, you are almighty. You're all these things you've said. Sometimes we doubt, we lean on our own understanding, we're not trusting in you as we should. Cause us to trust in you with all of our hearts, our whole being. May we not trust in anything else, in our own understanding, in our ways, in this world or whatever it might be. Forgive us when we when we do trust in other things and other people, show us our, our sin there when we do that. And may we be quick to repent of our idolatry in other things. But may our, our worship be only in You. May we bring You honor and glory with our, our lives as people see our trust even in the midst of danger and trouble that, that's going to come our way. May this watching world look at us and say, whoa, their God is good and their God is great. May the unbelievers say, wow, I want to know that kind of a God. May our trust in you be so great that the watching world sees Jesus Christ being lived out inside of us and through us and His power and His strength and His grace. In Jesus' name, amen.